will, Romans chapter 5. Today, our text is specifically verse 20. Last week, I started out by talking about the ultimate authority for believers. And we said it is not in councils, our popes, or a magisterium, uh, our creeds, but rather it is the Bible. Now, that is true. However, most Baptists believe the whole Bible because they don't know what's in it. And once you tell them what's in it, uh, it makes them unhappy. Uh, I have been a pastor for 47 years, and I have been in some contentious business meetings. Uh, the most contentious business meeting that we have had in my nearly 35-year tenure here at North Athens was over a great doctrinal issue. We wanted to move the time of service from 1045 to 1030. <clears throat> it came as a unanimous recommendation from the deacons, from myself. That meant absolutely nothing. So we bickered about it for about 35 minutes before, by a narrow margin, we voted to do the unholy thing and start at 1030. Now, chapter and verse, I'm unsure of don't know but that is the way things go uh, so you can imagine the problem if you will of the Apostle Paul Paul is arguing in these verses that the law does not bring justification the law doesn't save you. now the Jews thought it did that was a huge issue for them. and remember the, the early date for the Exodus around 1440 B.C. The latest date is 1290 B.C. I favor the earlier date because the biblical evidence, I think, is in favor of the early date. So we're talking about over a thousand years of tradition that had been built up and layered up about the law and about what it does. Remember we've said before, the, the fourth commandment just says, Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. But the Jews had layered up about 1,560 different traditions to interpret that few words there. So Paul is dealing with something that is very, very important to the, to, to the Jews that were in the congregation at Rome uh, and something that had been around for many, many, many years. Now, we, we have followed Paul's argument through these 19 verses uh, of chapter 5, particularly in detail from chapter, or from verse 12 uh, up through verse 19. And we've seen the contrast between the sin of Adam and its consequences on the one hand, and the obedience of Christ and its consequences on the other, and that's been kind of all wrapped up. The sin of Adam led to condemnation and death. The obedience of Christ led to justification and eternal life. And it's so important that Paul actually states that truth twice, once in verse 18 and then again in verse 19. So why now in verse 20 is Paul reintroducing the idea of law, trespass, sin, grace, 
uh, wouldn't that be redundant? Is it really necessary? Well, the words are very important. I think they're important for, for at least three reasons. First, they are a summary of what he has already been saying. So all of the key terms are repeated, uh, verses 12 through 19. Those key terms are repeated. And secondly, verse 20 and 21 are actually a capsule treatment of what we're going to look at in Romans chapter 6 and 7. One commentator says that the following chapters are nothing but an extended commentary on verses 20 and 21. And then thirdly, verses 20 and 21 answer a question that has not been answered but has been suggested by something that Paul wrote earlier. So it's that question that concerns us now. Verse 20 begins by mentioning the law. Now the law, he says, came in to increase the trespass. So again, think about what Paul has already said about the law. And he said two things. One, the law was not given as a way for men to be justified. Can't be saved by the law. The Jews thought differently. They, they uh, thought that they could, but what, what they did is what all legalists do. They watered the law down to where they could keep it. They couldn't really keep it, so you water it down to where you can, you know. Uh, and you make starting at 1045 rather than 1030 a commandment, you know, that, that you can't, that you can't get around. But Paul has been at pains in the book of Romans to say, no, 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 that's not true. He says the law tells you what you should do, but it does not enable you to do it. It simply reveals that you are a sinner. He made that clear in Romans chapter 3 when he said, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. But rather through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now secondly, Paul has further stated in verses 12 through 19 that the law was not even necessary to condemn us. It does that, of course. But it wasn't necessary to because Paul says... We all sinned in Adam. That was original sin. When Adam sinned, mankind sinned. Because we were in Adam. Uh, he was the federal head of the race. <clears throat> so uh, it is because of his trespass, he says in verse 19, that the many were made sinners. So we come to this point, and someone might say, well, now, Paul, You've said that the law was not a means of justification, and we accept that. You've proven that from the Scripture. Now you've said the law is not even necessary to condemn us because we sinned in Adam. That's a lot more difficult, but okay, we're willing to accept that too. But if those two things are true, then what was the purpose of the law? Why was it even given? If we can't be saved by the law, and the law wasn't necessary to condemn, condemn us, then does it in fact do anything? Does the law of God serve 
any purpose at all? This is the question that has not been answered, but was suggested by Paul's mention of the law earlier in Romans 5, particularly in verses 13 and 14. So he gives us an answer in verse 20. Why was the law given? Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Oh, great. Now we got a whole new set of problems. It seems to say on the surface that God wanted more sin. So he decided to create sin by giving man the law. And yet we know that that cannot be true. That's an obvious error. For the Bible teaches us other places that God is not the author of sin, nor does he encourage it. James says that God doesn't tempt us. He says God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. So if Romans 5.20 does not mean on the surface what it seems to mean, what does it mean? The key, I think, uh, is in the words, the law came you look at different translations, uh, English translations, you find that the, the Greek word translated came in, in the ESV, is translated several different ways. Uh, the Phillips translation says it keeps slipping into the picture. The NEB says intruded. The TEB says was introduced. The NIV translates it added. The New King James translates the word enter. Now this is the same word that was used for the entrance of sin into the world back in verse 12 when Paul said, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. The difference in this word is that the prefix para is added to it. Of course, meaning alongside of. So the literal meaning is the law entered alongside of? Alongside of what? Obviously, alongside of sin that had already entered into the world. So, as soon we see that God sent the law to come alongside of sin, then we can understand that the law was meant to exist in a relationship to the sin that was already there. The law doesn't cause sin, but rather it does something to it. Since the sentence goes on to say that what it is is to increase the trespass, it has to mean that the law somehow brought out the true nature and the magnitude of sin so that it can be seen for what it truly is. Uh, the law shows us the sinfulness of sin. The law shows us the ugliness of sin and how it is opposed to righteousness and opposed to the will of God. And moreover, we're going to see it was because of grace and in order that the grace of God might abound that God did this. So the law, first of all, 
increase sin by increasing our knowledge of it. That's what Paul is going to explain further in Romans 7. In Romans 7, verse 7, he's going to say, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Obviously, the law did not make Paul covetous. He was already covetous. It merely showed him that coveting was sin. So let's think about that. How does the law increase our knowledge of sin specifically? First of all, the law defines sin for us. Before the giving of the law, we were in a sense like children. You know how it is with children. They have the seeds of sin in them, and they behave sinfully. But there is a sense which they do not know what they are doing or what they are inclined to do is sinful. Children are selfish, for example. If you take 42-year-olds and uh, put them in a room with 5,000 toys, what's going to happen? They all want the same toy because they're selfish. But they only begin to learn what selfishness is when a parent or a teacher tells them you have to share. You, everything can't be yours. You, you must share with others. No one can have everything. Children are willful. They want to do what they want to do. But they discover what this is only when their wills are opposed by the steadier, wiser will of their parents. And their parents impose their will on the children for their own good. Then they know that their willful behavior is sinful. So in the same way, the law defines sin for us. Another way of saying it is that the law turns sin into transgressions. All wrongful acts are sin even without the law. But they are only seen to be sin when they are exposed as transgressions of the law. Paul says that explicitly earlier in the letter. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. When there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, men were sinners, and they died for it. Paul said that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned exactly the same way Adam did. But the law defined sin. The law made sin to be a transgression of God's will. Secondly, the law reveals sin nature. The true essence of sin is that it is rebellion against God. But there is a sense in which we do not realize that until we are confronted with the law that pertains to our case. I mean by that that almost everyone in the world has some God-given sense of right and wrong. Even the most uh, unenlightened heathen uh, without a knowledge of the Bible, has a certain moral code. But he does not know God, and as a result, he does not know that his actions are violations of God's law. And when he knows 
that they are violations, that they are directed against God, that it increases the moral sensibility. I'll give an example, the Bible. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then conspired to have her husband killed. That was wrong. Even if David were an unenlightened heathen, he would have known that that was not right. Adultery and murder are not condoned in any culture, anywhere. But because David was also an instructed member of God's chosen race, God, David, when he was convicted of his sin, saw his sin on a much deeper level. So when he confessed his sin in Psalm uh, 51, he said to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. David had sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned with her as well. He had certainly sinned against Uriah. And he sinned against the nation of Israel. But it was only when his, he saw that his sin was against God that the true horror of his sin gripped him and led him to confess it openly. He knew that ultimately he had sinned against God. He had sinned against the others, but ultimately his sin was against God because God is holy. Then the law exposes sin's power. Uh, I had a, I had a <clears throat> man in my church one time, not this church, and I would say to him occasionally, because I was also at one time a heavy smoker, I said to him, Tony, you know, you really ought to quit. He said, I can quit anytime I want. I said, yeah, I said that for years. I must have quit 5,000 times, you know. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd quit for a day or two, and then I'd go back. He said, I can quit anytime I want to quit. So finally, he, he had a heart attack. And his doctor came into ICU. I was in there. I started to leave. The doctor said, nope. Preacher, you stay right here. I want you to hear what I'm going to say to you. So he said to Tony, he said, I've been telling you for years you've got to quit smoking. So I'm telling you right now, you're going to quit or you're going to die. And if you don't want to quit, I'm leaving. I will not be your doctor. Now he has a law, the law of his doctor. But he found out that he really couldn't quit. He was addicted to nicotine. He realized he needed help. That, that it, it wasn't as easy to quit as he thought it was. The law does that. The law exposes the power of sin. The law tells us that we cannot keep it, and yet we are condemned by it, and we need the power of God. We need the power of the Holy Spirit and His Word to help us to overcome sin. The law makes us helpless before its commands. Uh, and until people are convicted by the law of God, they will not attempt to even reform their lives. And when they attempt to reform them, they realize they cannot do it. They're helpless. And so they must turn to Christ and to the power of the gospel to overcome the sin that is in their lives. But the law also unveils sin's deceit. Until we are
directly exposed to the law, we excuse our conduct. And we do it by calling sin by a lesser name or denying it. How many people have you heard say, well, so-and-so had an affair? They don't say they committed adultery. Well, that's just too much. Or how many people now use the word alternative lifestyle to talk about homosexuality? When the Bible says it is sodomy and condemns it completely. Or how many people are just gathering information so that they can pray intelligently when the Bible says they're gossips? We change the name of our sins because changing the name of them makes us more comfortable in committing them. The written law shows us that sin is sin. And we should not take it lightly that it is rebellion and disobedience against God. One of the greatest problems in our culture today is that men do not have a knowledge of sin. They call evil good. They call good evil. They exchange the darkness for the light. And it's happening at every level of our society. But the law of God teaches us the depth and the foulness and the exceeding sinfulness of sin. That it is cosmic rebellion. It is rebellion against a holy God. It is when men and women realize the depth of iniquity and the sin that they are in and they, their helplessness to pull themselves out of it that they cry out to God. The law exposes sin. The law convicts us of sin. And the law drives us to the gospel as the only remedy for sin. That's the next point. The law brings conviction of sin. The law not only brings a knowledge of sin by defining it and exposing its power and its true and deceitful nature, but it convicts us of sin. We're, that's where this has all been leading to. Now, sometimes the law can do the opposite. Sometimes the law can harden a person. But when the Spirit of God is moving, the preaching of the law brings conviction. And it teaches those who have been convicted to recoil from sin and to flee to Christ. It does that because the law reveals that sin is an offense against God. As long as we only think of sin as a uh, a violation of some abstract moral code, then it doesn't trouble us very much. We'll just try to get away with the sin that we can. Sin will not even trouble us a great deal if we think it's a violation of someone else's moral code made by other human beings. Well, why should that restrict me? Just because you've got a moral code different from mine doesn't mean I should be restricted by it. But when we discover that sin is against the God who has made us, who has provided us with all good things. When we see sin as a rebellion against the Creator, an offense and insult to Him, it is then that we experience real conviction. In Romans 7, where Paul is discussing the role of the law at length, he not only says that the entrance of the law gave knowledge of sin, 
he said that it awoke sin and allowed sin to produce even more sinful desires. He says, but sin, seizing the opportunity offered by the, afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Men are the same everywhere. You tell someone they can't do something, that's exactly what they want to do. Just the way we are. We're sinners. I mean, I could be going down the highway at a reasonable speed, not often, but sometimes. And I say, uh, I, I see a sign that says speed limit 70, and I think, I can do 80. I mean, you, know, you get by with 80, they'll let you buy at 80. Especially when there's people passing me at 90, you know because they've even got a more rebellious nature than I do. But whenever we are confronted with sin or with a commandment, we'll break it. Again, take take children. Suppose we put, again, 42-year-olds in this room. And we say to the two-year-olds, all right, you can go anywhere in this room you want to go. It's a big room. You just can't go in the foyer. Watch them hit for the foyer. Why? Because, <laughs> because... That is the nature of man. He wants to do what he's told that he cannot. That is truly the very nature of sin. And the law exposes us as stiff-necked rebels. We do not like obedience. So, the message is entitled Law and Grace. Where's the grace at? We're in the midst of all of this definitions of law and what law does is grace. Or to put it differently, why did I why did I title it Law and Grace? You know, maybe I was up late one night just put that up. Well, there are several answers, but let me let me give it a couple of. First, the very exposure of sin is an act of the grace of God. God didn't need to give us the law. He could have left us in ignorance. He could have left us in willful rebellion against him and rightly condemned us in our blind sinfulness. He could have left us to compare ourselves with other people. Well, I'm better than so-and-so, so I must be okay. But by giving us the law, God disabused us of those fantasies. I'm not to compare myself to someone else, but to the perfect law of God. That is the standard of righteousness that I must meet. The first step in seeking a doctor is to know you're sick. And in order to seek salvation, you must know you need it. But secondly, the law contained an anticipation of the gospel. When God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, what did he also tell Moses about? The sacrifices. He also instituted the sacrificial system where sin might be punished by the substitution of the innocent one. A man could bring a lamb or a goat or a calf, and an innocent could be substituted for the sinner. And that pointed ultimately to the atonement that is provided in Jesus Christ. Those sacrifices did not atone for sin. They pointed to the one who does atone sin. The sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who came and kept this law perfectly. I said last week that theologians divide the obedience of Christ into his active obedience and his passive obedience. 
Active obedience means he kept the law of God, all of it, all of his life. He was a man born under the law, subject to it, and he kept it. That was his active obedience. He never broke the law of God. He was born of a virgin. His father, as it were, is God. His mother was a virgin. He did not inherit Adam's sin. And then he kept the law of God perfectly in every respect. That qualified him for his passive obedience. He went to a cross and died in the place of sinners that had broken God's law. He went to a cross and died for sinners. And then to prove that his sacrifice was acceptable to God, on the third day God raised him from the dead for our justification. So with the law came the sacrificial system that points to the atonement of Jesus Christ. At the cross of Christ, the law of God and the grace of God met, and both fully satisfied. God's grace saves us from the law's condemnation and more. And we will see that in our study of Romans 6 and 7. We'll see that the same ones who were lawbreakers are enabled to become lawkeepers by the Spirit of God. And so both the law of God and the grace of God are magnificent. Our Father and our God, 